0: I grew up in a, in a very uh, Republican family, and the night of the 48 election, I was 15, I was in high school, and I was very interested in politics, and I wanted to stay up to hear who won, but the final count didn't come in until something like 2 in the morning, and I fell asleep. And the next morning, my father was in shaving, and I ran in, I said, Dad, Dad, who won? And he said, Truman, deep, sorrowful voice, like it was the end of the world, and About 25, 30 years later, I was back home in Pittsburgh, where I grew up, and my father and I were having a nice chat after dinner. And he was going on about how the world was going to hell and the country was going to hell. And then he paused and he said, too bad old Harry isn't still on the way. (laughs) Um, We see things differently as time goes on, and that's the nature of reality. Truman himself said, you have to wait for the dust to settle. And he he was right. You do. Um, If you were ranking Truman in the last months or year of his presidency, he'd rank him pretty low. But as the dust has settled over the last 50 years and more, we see now that Harry Truman was a very important and and effective and admirable president. Um, A man who never wanted the job, never imagined he'd be in the job.
1: That's biographer David McCullough. And I'm Lillian Cunningham with the Washington Post. This is the 32nd episode of Presidential.
0: I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow.
1: What your country can do for you,
0: a date which will live in. Infamy.
1: This episode is about the imperfect art of making decisions that hold up over time. Predictions, judgment calls. It's an episode, I hope, about what it takes to try to see the future and to make a decision in the moment that will put you ultimately on the right side of history. So there are a couple of ways we're going to explore this with Harry Truman. And one is by looking at some of his biggest and most controversial decisions in the White House. And then another is by looking at the biggest polling miscalculation in American presidential history. And that was Truman's election in 1948, when just about everyone predicted, incorrectly, that he was going to lose. So I have two featured guests this week. David McCullough, the historian and biographer who wrote the book Truman, and Scott Clement, who's the head of polling for The Washington Post. I'm going to kick it off first with David McCullough, who was also on our John Adams episode and our Theodore Roosevelt episode.
0: Uh, Yes, this is David speaking from our home in Boston.
1: And uh, you've written biographies of all three of these presidents, David. So is there something that... Finds your interest in these three men, something that you saw shared at the heart of all three of these presidencies?
0: Well, I think that Adams, Harry Truman, and Theodore Roosevelt all had a very strong sense of history. They were well read in history. And with that came a sense of cause and effect. What's the right decision for the country in the long run? And to me, Adams and Truman in particular, are presidents who were preceded by and then followed by taller, more glamorous, more celebrated presidents. Um, in the case of Adams, it was Washington and then Jefferson. With Truman, it was Roosevelt and then Eisenhower. And I felt that these were two extremely important and interesting presidents. But beyond that, they're great stories, great American stories from birth to death. Both Adams and Truman came from very modest, you might even say obscure backgrounds, and one would not think that they could rise to be and do what they did, but they did.
1: So this seems like a good place to start with a bit about his early story. Harry S. Truman was born in 1884 in the tiny frontier town of Lamar, Missouri. And interestingly, the S in his name doesn't actually stand for anything, it is just S. So, Harry S. Truman had one of those sort of classic, modest upbringing stories. He helped his family run their farm, and they were often in a lot of financial difficulty. He had famously bad eyesight, and so he was a shy, kind of awkward, introverted boy. And, you know, then, like many of these stories go, his father died when Truman was about 20 years old.
0: Uh, By our standards, Harry Truman grew up with no advantages at all. Truman never went to college, but that should never be a sign that he was not well-read or interested in history or interested in learning. He wasn't brilliant and he didn't have the capacity to express himself in words that some of the others had. But he had a very good mind. Very few people in his time, or even since, ever, ever imagined that Harry Truman read Latin for pleasure, for example, (laughs) or that he would go to hear the National Symphony whenever he could, but also whenever they were playing one of his favorite composers, uh, like Mozart, And and if they were playing somebody like Mozart he would take the score with him. That's not the Harry Truman that everybody popularly uh, thinks of.
1: One of the things that he would get sometimes ridiculed about was his devotion to his mother. Tell me a little bit about how that relationship you think shaped.
0: Well, I who I, I he did a, um, a piece years ago on Mama's boys, picking people from various walks of life, Frank Lloyd Wright, General MacArthur, Harry Truman, Lyndon Johnson, and I came to the conclusion that whether or not you're a mama's boy is good or bad for you depends almost entirely on what kind of a person mama was. (laughs) And Truman's mother was not a mother who spoiled her children. She required that they live up to certain standards and behave in a certain way. But she also had backbone. She believed in speaking the truth, speaking directly. She believed in the old hard rock Midwestern American virtues and values and conveyed that to him.
1: Truman held a hodgepodge of jobs in his youth. He worked for a construction company. He worked as a bank clerk. He joined the National Guard. He ended up serving, actually, as a soldier in France during World War II, and uh, after his military service, he came back to Missouri, and he married his childhood sweetheart, Bess. He also then started a men's clothing store with his friend in Kansas City before it failed. So it's around 1922 when he first starts to dip his toe into politics, And he runs for a judgeship in kansas with the support of the democratic party boss of kansas city who later ends up in prison but um anyway time passes he serves in these various judgeships and in 1934 truman won a seat in the u.s senate and he moved to washington dc when he's in the senate he's not a particularly standout politician but Some of his notable involvement was with revamping transportation regulations, with helping set up the framework for the airline industry to grow. So on the whole, he's not making a bunch of waves in the Senate. Other than that, he's just kind of a good Democrat supporting President Roosevelt's New Deal agenda at the time. And so this fairly sparse, clean, good Democrat record is why the Democratic Party decided that they should package Truman as vice president with FDR when FDR was running for his fourth term as president in 1944. Truman did not seem to have a whole lot to offer the ticket, you know, mostly just kind of seemed like someone who would keep out of the way. But that, of course, was not how things turned out. On April 12th, 1945, so this is just a couple months into Truman's vice presidency, he gets called to the White House, and up until this point, he's had hardly any contact with President Roosevelt at all. He's not involved in any of the decision-making, doesn't see any of the process, and so he's called into Eleanor Roosevelt's study, and she says to him, Harry, the president is dead. And Truman says to Is there anything I can do for you? And Eleanor says back to him, Is there anything I can do for you? You're the one in trouble now. David, how did Truman approach this really just immense task of taking over the presidency? I mean, you know, not only is World War II at its climax and Truman hasn't been clued into any of the decision making up until this point, but also FDR was this charismatic, larger than life figure who'd been president for 12 years. So, how did Truman jump into this leadership void?
0: Uh, Harry Truman never tried to talk like Franklin Roosevelt because he wanted to follow in Franklin Roosevelt's shoes.
1: Do you think that's um, one of the common themes for effective leaders is just their ability to embrace who they are rather than yes, trying to conform to some image of what... They're, mm-hmm.
0: they're not faking it. They're not trying to act the part that they really are miscasting. I had the advantage with Truman of being able to talk with countless people who knew him or who worked with him, a part of his administration. And when I asked people who did know him at the time that Franklin Roosevelt died, and I was asked the same question to all of them, um, how did you feel when you heard that Roosevelt had died and Harry Truman was now president? And without exception, all of them said, I felt good about it. Hmm. And I said, why? And they would say, because I knew the man. They weren't going on surface impressions or what the press was saying. One of my favorite scenes of all was right at the point when Truman was about to appoint George Marshall Secretary of State. One of his uh, political advisors said, Mr. President, you might want to think twice about appointing General Marshall Secretary of State. And Truman said, Well, why is that? He said, Because if General Marshall becomes Secretary of State, In three or four months people will be saying he would make a better president than you are and Truman said he would make a better president than I am but I want the best possible people around me now that's a man who knew who he was and knew what the job that he had amounted to and he knew he needed all the help possible and most of them were better educated and taller and handsomer and wealthier than he ever was
1: So, of course, the huge first task before him is overseeing an end to the war.
2: This is a solemn
0: but a glorious hour. I only wish that Franklin D. Roosevelt had lived to witness this day.
2: General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. The flags of freedom fly all over
0: Europe.
1: The victory in Europe came on May 8th, 1945, which, coincidentally, was Truman's 61st birthday, and it was less than a month after Truman had taken over the presidency. Victory over Japan, though, seemed a lot farther away at the time. The Allies expected that an invasion of Japan would add probably another year to the fighting of World War II and that it would probably result in the loss of hundreds of thousands more lives. So, in the summer of 1945, President Truman made the decision to end the war as quickly as possible he decides to drop an atomic bomb on Japan.
0: That really, in the opinion of a lot of us who've studied it, was a, a decision that was no decision. I think Churchill used that expression because of the terrible loss of life on both sides had the invasion of Japan gone ahead and the invasion of Japan was definitely going to go ahead. The use of the atomic weapons was horrible in the extreme but what would have happened had they not been used it would have appear from all that we know have been even more horrible.
1: On August sixth, 1945 the first bomb dropped on Hiroshima. On August 9th A second one dropped on Nagasaki. The estimates are between 100 and 200,000 people who died, and just about all of these people were civilians who died instantly. I want to just pause here for a moment and say that I definitely could have spent this entire episode talking just about Truman's decision to use the atomic bomb. And this is something that inevitably is going to come up more and more as we move into this final stretch of episodes, which is that there are just so many big, important, complex moments for many of these presidencies. And in a lot of cases, I'm going to just have to touch briefly on it and put the focus of my episode somewhere else. So Truman, of course, ends up with the task of helping to shape the peace after World War II. And this is when more of the divisions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union start to show themselves, and when the early Cold War begins to emerge. Meanwhile, though, by 1948, Congress has authorized the European Recovery Program, which is also more popularly known as the Marshall Plan. It was named after Secretary of State George Marshall. And it was this multi-billion dollar initiative for the United States to help Western Europe rebuild its economies after the war.
0: Probably the most important creative accomplishment of his presidency was the Marshall Plan, which saved Europe, no question about it. Then how he handled the Berlin airlift, for example, brave, dangerous, decision. And he knew how much was at stake. And it worked.
1: And that's when Truman ordered the airlift of fuel and food into Berlin after the Soviets had blocked access to the city. And so it's things like this Berlin airlift and the dropping of the bomb that start to give Truman this reputation for being decisive, right? So so what did his actual decision making process look like?
0: Truman was once asked by a reporter how he made decisions. He said, well, I asked my advisors to study the situation and give me their opinions. Then I retire to my office up in our living quarters, and I spend hours going over all these papers and reading everything that I've been provided, and then I make the decision. And the reporter said, well, what, what happens, Mr. President, if you've made the wrong decision? He said, then I make another decision. Mm-hmm. And that's very good, clear Middle Western thinking with one sweep of the pen. He desegregated the armed services. He didn't go out and make a big fuss about how he's going to do this. He just did it.
1: Right. So this was in 1948. That's the year that he's up for election. He desegregates the military and he outlaws discrimination in the civil service.
0: A president should always make decisions that are selfless. That are in the best interests of the country in the long run, and not worry about getting reelected and not designing everything he or she says, every appearance he or she makes in order to enhance his her standing with the people. Yes, that's important, but it's not what matters most.
1: Well, and it looked like Truman was actually going to pay the political price for some of these, including his decision that the United States should be the first country to recognize the newly formed state of Israel, which was a controversial decision as well. So, really, from the very beginning of this 1948 campaign season, Truman is already looking like he's going to be booted out of office.
0: If anyone was, in his whole life, was the kind of person who wouldn't give up, it was Harry Truman. And all the predictions of how he was going to lose in 1948, 50 different members of the press who were experts at covering politics and were covering the campaigns were asked how the election was going to come out. And all 50 said that Truman was going to lose. But Truman never let that bother him. He never even mentioned Tom Dewey's name in the course of the campaign. So he wasn't attacking his opponent in a personal way ever. He was out on the road, on the trail, on the railroads, carrying on his so-called whistle-stop campaign, and the crowds kept getting bigger and bigger, and people seemed to just feel, well, they're coming out to see a president before he leaves office. Not at all.
1: All right, so we're now going to turn to the 1948 election, which is known either as one of the greatest upsets in presidential election history, or conversely, as just about the greatest failure in polling history. Um, So with me to walk through this chapter of the American presidency is my colleague Scott Clement, who's the head of polling for The Washington Post. So thanks. I know you're very busy now in the election season.
2: Oh, but Always an important time to, to review some to past reflect. failures as we head into a high-stakes season.
1: So Harry Truman, at this point, he served a couple of years in the White House as FDR's replacement. He's never actually been elected himself to the presidency. And he's running in 1948. And the spoiler, obviously, is that he wins. But... You know, there's that iconic photograph with Truman holding up a newspaper with the headline that reads, Incorrectly, Dewey Defeats Truman. So I want to talk with you about how in the world we got to that point. And to do that, maybe we'll just back up. um, What do the polls even look like early on in the campaign? And what was kind of the science of polling at the time. Right.
2: So polling was not in its infancy at that moment, but it it was a pretty young science. There had long been polls. of There was really no scientific technique applied back to the 19th century. And then there was the famous Literary Digest survey, which was a massive magazine survey that was very popular and accurate in the uh, late 20s and early 30s. And then Where
1: readers just fill out yep. They think. They Did sent they it out
2: to, to their work? readership, and and then it famously failed in um, 1936, and George Gallup also came to fame at that moment because he promised more scientific method of sampling. So this is really a heyday of the early polling industry. There was a real confidence about them, and there was a real heavy media focus on polling way back then. Of course, we think about polling being a sort of media fixation today, but mm-hmm. it was very much back then as well. And so there was a lot of reasons to believe that Truman was going to be a weak incumbent. Uh, He was facing some serious challenges within his own party, particularly from Strom Thurmond. It was viewed to be a low turnout year, which is something that people thought would benefit Dewey because that had seemed to benefit Republicans in recent elections. Mm. Uh, And so, you know, the – The three main pollsters uh, that were conducting national surveys were, of course, famous George Gallup, but there was also Elmo Roper, and there was Archibald Crossley. These were really the leaders in the industry.
1: So what does does the type of polling, what does that look like? What does public opinion polling look like at the time?
2: The most popular form of polling, at least at the national level, was what was called, called quota sampling. So interviewers were asked to go and find people who fit different demographic quotas, something that would match the population according to the most recent census. So if you were sent out to a neighborhood, you might be asked to find people uh, in three different age groups. And Mm -hmm. interviewers were given discretion into who they could select and what households they would go to. Now, this can help achieve a sample that is demographically balanced uh, and can look like the population. But as some social scientists were pointing out at the time, that method doesn't offer the kind of generalizability uh, that a random sample does. Back then, it it was pseudo-random, but the interviewers had wide discretion. And so that can introduce bias into who they interview. They might Mm -hmm. interview people that are easier to obtain an interview with. They also might interview people that are more like themselves. So there was some evidence that that uh, was an issue. Hmm. And what the polling started to show uh, was a a very clear and consistent advantage for Dewey uh, going into the fall.
1: Part of what, you know, I find fascinating about looking back at the 48 election, and obviously it still happens today, is the way that um, seeing these sort of early poll numbers can change the way that campaigns operate. So, for example, in 48, because this narrative started to emerge that Dewey looked like a clear winner, the strategy that Uh, The Republicans ended up taking was, well, just don't make any gaffes like you don't need to go out there and hit the campaign trail in the same sort of proactive way than if you think you're the underdog. You definitely
2: see it happening uh, in today's campaigns. If a person has a really big lead, there's a tendency to be more cautious, to take fewer risks. If you're way behind, clearly you need to roll the dice a bit and try to mix things up. Uh, You know, Harry Truman gained a reputation on this campaign as having some very fiery rhetoric, really campaigning hard, trying to overcome what seemed to be some very fierce headwinds. And Dewey is remembered more for taking some long breaks off the campaign trail up in New York. Uh, You can imagine what it was like uh, for Dewey campaign to see poll releases uh, and the Truman campaign to see poll releases in September saying that this is a foregone conclusion. Most of the polls showed uh, Dewey leading by you know, five to five or more percentage polls. The the media reacted a lot in the way they are doing right now with Donald Trump. You know, Max hmm. Stu Rothenberg's headline, Donald Trump needs a miracle, is literally a headline from <laughs> 1948. But what what happened was they you know they they missed the call obviously.
1: Was the polling just flawed all the way along or was part of it that there was really sort of a a change of tide toward the end that the polls weren't able to like accurately catch up to and reflect
2: the polls that were conducted before were were biased in a consistent way against Truman post-election polls found that one out of seven voters made their decision about how to vote within the last two weeks or at least they said they did and three quarters of them said they voted for Truman so this provided you know some evidence that uh there was a swing toward Truman, or the people that were on the fence and undecideds made a move toward Truman hmm. in the final weeks. And I'm sure that finding you know, added to the uh, sense among pollsters that uh, they they shouldn't have considered the race a foregone conclusion and stopped polling, uh, stop conducting their surveys very late in the contest. If there's any lesson that came out of that election that has been taken to heart by many pollsters, it's that. Um and, and you keep
1: and go up, pulling right up to the ke- moment.
2: You keep going. If anything, you, know, you want to track the trends, but the worst case scenario is that if there is a late shift and you miss it, you're going to have egg on your face.
1: Mm-hmm. So do you want to just tell the story of how it actually happened that— the Chicago Tribune prints a front page that says Dewey defeats Truman.
2: This this headline is is really remarkable. It's it's a false headline, uh, of course. It's mm-hmm. a, <laughs> we often don't see newspapers blaring things that are blatantly and and, and are false that and are just the one biggest way. news in the biggest news of all <laughs> the entire election. Um, there was a printer strike uh, that forced the paper to go to press before they normally would, uh, that particular night, that election night. And so they didn't feel like they had the luxury of waiting until the election returns were coming in, all the way in, so they could see who was actually winning. Um, And when the the first edition deadline approached, uh, the Chicago Tribune editor consulted with their uh, political correspondent in Washington, and they'd made a call that, this was Dewey was going to win, and that they were going to print this headline. Um, so That
1: was just how confident they were and what all the numbers were showing. That yeah, that's right. This is not a normal circumstance,
2: <laughs> I should say. I mean, it's it, but but what allowed them to make a kind of confident call is that for the past two months, polls, national polls, had shown a sizable lead for Dewey, and the conventional wisdom that this this race was over had set in. In, in some ways, I think that that headline summarizes a lot of the, the thinking that was going on and the headlines that have been going on for months before. If you look back, this is striking, really. But back in September 9, early September, some of the headlines that uh, were printed, uh, Dewey victory in November by wide margin predicted. There's uh, Dewey almost certain to win. Roper poll finds. Uh, I, I think it's hard to ignore that overall environment in terms of how it contributed to that eventual decision to print that famous headline of Mm -hmm. Dewey defeats Truman Uh, but it uh, they, they didn't have to wait long of course to find out yeah. that they were wrong even then the the, 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 the Tribune notes that the it, they might have gotten away with it they might have gotten <laughs> ignored except of course Truman gets past this newspaper uh while he <laughs> while he's traveling around and and holds it up for this absolutely famous picture which summarized the ultimate comeback uh overcoming uh, whatever odds or pollsters or anybody else thought so the polling industry I mean, they went into crisis. By December, they had issued a major report trying to dig into what went wrong. And uh, the next year, they published a book on it, and it caused major changes. It turned out that there were a lot of like cautionary tales out of this. There were both scientific, nerdy ones, mm-hmm. but there were also just the, the the moral tale for the news is you know don't write the news before it's <laughs> true. It's a pretty basic one, but but like don't bet on an election.
1: So Truman's next term starts up, and he takes this mandate that he feels like he's been given by his victory, and he rolls out a bold, progressive, liberal agenda to do things like increase the minimum wage, create national health insurance, push forward more civil rights legislation, expand Social Security. And some of this happens, like expanding Social Security and boosting the minimum wage. But a lot of it doesn't actually get enough support from Congress to make it anywhere. By 1950, Truman has also re-engaged the United States in international conflict, the Korean War. And he sees this as an extension of the Cold War power struggle between the United States and Russia, between democracy and communism, playing out in this conflict between North and South Korea. And it's in the midst of this war that Truman makes one of his most controversial decisions as president. He decides to fire General Douglas MacArthur, who has been leading the U.N. command there.
0: The most unpopular thing he ever did, Truman, was to fire General MacArthur. And he knew that General MacArthur had to be fired because he was acting as though he was the commander-in-chief. And Truman believed in sustaining of the presidency, and that he was the commander in chief, not General MacArthur. And he asked General Marshall to go and study the whole situation for him and come back and give him a report. And Marshall, who, of course, had spent his whole career in the military, did just that. And he came back and said, Mr. President, I would have fired him before this had I been in your job. And it made him extremely unpopular. I remember it all very well. I was in high school at the time, and I remember The furor over it and the uh, sense that this was the worst president we'd ever had.
1: What's so interesting is that here we see the flip side of that earlier decision Truman made to bring on George Marshall as secretary of state. That's when his advisors were cautioning him, you know, that Marshall would make him look less fit to be president. And Truman was telling them, I don't care. I just want the best people. Well, here we see Truman deciding to cut one of the most decorated military leaders in history, in large part because MacArthur was seen to be undermining Truman's authority as president. Now, of course, over time, there are many people who had come to see both personnel decisions that Truman made, the one for Marshall, the one against MacArthur, um, to see both of those as the right ones. But... I mean, it's interesting, I think, to contemplate the difference in how Truman reasoned through these two staffing questions and perhaps what it says about how his views shifted over time in terms of what he required of others in order to feel that he was being an effective president. Truman did not run again in 1952. He left the White House, he moved back to Independence, Missouri, where his presidential library was built, and he remained as active as he could in politics. Fast forward to 1965, when Lyndon Johnson signed the Medicare bill into law, he did so at the Truman Presidential Library, with Truman looking on. Johnson noted at that ceremony that the seeds for Medicare were planted by Truman, who had advocated for national health insurance and who had also expanded Social Security. And when the first Medicare cards were printed, Medicare card number one and card number two went to Truman and to his wife, Bess. Now, I think I'll let David McCullough close the episode for us with his reflections on the post-presidency and the legacy, as he sees it, of Harry Truman.
0: When he heard that the uh, Kennedy campaign was going to start having $1,000-a-plate dinners to raise money for Kennedy's presidential campaign, Uh he said, there goes democracy. Of course, now both parties have $50,000-a-plate dinners to raise money. He refused ever to take a fee for a speech after he left the White House because he felt that would be a disgrace to the office of the presidency. He wouldn't serve on any board because of that. He wouldn't lobby by making a phone call for somebody for which he would be handsomely paid. It's a sad thing that we've lost that kind of moral outlook and respect and respect for the office itself. He wanted to live up to what the office called for. So much of our attention is taken up with bad news, or greed, or cruelty, or outrageous behavior of one kind or another, that we forget we are a good country, that we are a good people. And with the right kind of purpose in our leaders, there's truly still very little we can't accomplish. I think that the knowledge of history increases one's optimism doesn't make one oblivious to what the problems really are. In fact, in many times cases, it makes those problems even more vivid. But there is the lesson from these people who preceded us that it can be done. As Churchill said, we haven't journeyed this far because we're made of sugar candy. (laughs) So let's end on that.
1: Many thanks to this week's guests, biographer David McCullough and Washington Post polling manager Scott Clement. Original music for the podcast is by Dave Wessner. Now we didn't talk this week about how Truman signed the National Security Act into law, which is what created the Department of Defense, the CIA, and the National Security Council. And we also didn't talk about the rise of McCarthyism, but don't worry because next week's episode is all about President Dwight Eisenhower and the rise of the military-industrial complex. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all the words of encouragement that so many of you send me. And we are now halfway through the 20th century.